Hey everybody, welcome to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. Welcome back to part two of my interview with Dr. Paul Saladino. I am your host, Ben Pakulski. This podcast is always framed around helping you, helping me live our greatest life in our greatest body and love your body. And Dr. Paul Saladino gives us an incredible deep dive into the reality that the carnivore diet could be, may possibly be, the best way to optimize health of this human organism that we all are living in. Now, if you haven't listened to part one, obviously go back right now and listen to part one because we walk through a lot of the basics and necessities to understanding the carnivore diet and understanding all, all the misconceptions around what people believe to be health. So we talk about things like vegetables, free radicals, polyphenols, antioxidants, uh, fish oils, all these things that we've been told and sold on as being necessary for health. And Dr. Saladino talks about how these things may not be what we think they are, and they might not be as necessary as we believe. We talk a little bit about how plants are, in fact, known toxins. They are designed to create stress in our body. And I bring up the term hormetic stress, and Dr. Saladino doesn't believe that Vegetables are necessarily causing a beneficial stress, more of an inflammatory response, and he's got a brilliant response to all of those aspects of the conversation. I also want to give a special shout out to our sponsor for today's episode. We're bringing back Four Sigmatic. You guys loved it. You guys know I love it. Four Sigmatic is hooking you up, and Dr. Saladino actually speaks a little bit about how humans over time have evolved to eat a lot of fungus. So we eat fungus being mushrooms. And uh, you know, if you are eating meat, there may be a useful addition uh, in adding mushrooms to optimize health and nerve growth and optimize the nervous system. We know that fungi have tremendous positive benefit uh, to the nervous system of the human species. And I strongly suggest if you are eating carnivore or any type of diet, you may want to consider adding, at very least, lion's mane and reishi into your repertoire. I've been using cordyceps a lot lately as I try to optimize my endurance. And uh, head over to foursigmatic.com and use the code MUSCLE to get hooked up with 15%. Enjoy the show with Dr. Paul Saladino. So none of these substances you're bringing up, like the oxalates and the, the anti-nutrients, are at all present in animal tissues. And following that up, is there no benefit then to, you know, I know you don't like to use the term, but the hormetic response to these toxins, like upgrading detox pathways, upgrading certain pathways in the body? Great, great questions. Great questions. These plant pesticides, as far as we know, there are zero toxic compounds in animal foods. And I like to think about this from the perspective of operating systems. Um, you know, like animals are the same operating system as humans, and plants are a completely different operating system. Plants are PC. I mean, we could see, well, we're biased to Mac or PC here. Plants are PC, you know, and uh, our plants are, you know, like a, a non, a PC version, and animal foods are Mac, you know, et cetera. So, Basically, these are these are a whole different operating system. They're from a whole different kingdom of evolution. There's a plant kingdom and an animal kingdom. And if we look in the plant kingdom, there is there are myriad toxins. We are talking thousands, tens of thousands of these plant toxins, these plant pesticides. In animals, there is nothing like that that exists. And there is there are zero known toxic compounds in 
animals. Now, the caveat to that statement is that we can create toxic compounds in animals by overcooking them. We can create polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, heterocyclic amines, if we overcook animals or we cook them incorrectly. But we can easily mitigate that by being careful how we cook the animals. But in our, you know, say you know we're hunting and we kill a deer. In that deer, there is nothing that we know of that's toxic for a human at all. Zero toxic compounds. Whereas in a cabbage, there's 49 natural pesticides that we just know of. And the names of these compounds are the mouth, I mean, a mouthful. They're, they're the things you don't want to put in your body, you know, 3-methyl, thiopropyl, L-glucosinolate, you know, 3-methyl, sulfonylpropylate, glucosinolate. I mean, those are just, these are organic molecules that we've never seen as humans. And then plants are saying, hey, we're a different operating system. I'm going to make a bunch of quote, and now I'm, again, I'm returning to the metaphor of different operating system. These are almost like plant viruses, right? Now, these are not the virus in the sense of the infective particle. These are like computer viruses within the metaphor of like a different operating system. These are these could be considered like plant viruses. These are molecules that our operating system has never seen, and they create a, prob- a lot of problems. But there are none of these toxic molecules in animals. Now, the other caveat is that. We do, humans do make oxalate as some of the, in some processes in our body, but oxalate is found in much higher concentrations in plants. When, if we over supplement with something like collagen, there is a pathway by which hydroxyproline, which is one of the amino acids in collagen, and I'm getting pretty geeky here. Some of your audience is like no, groaning. No, we, we love it, man. We love <laughs> some it. Some of your audience is groaning and some of the audience is loving it, but I'm trying to, I'm trying to make it good for people. So, uh, hydroxyproline is one of the three amino acids in collagen and that can be metabolized to oxalate if we overconsume it but it's probably only an issue if there's a b6 deficiency which would push hydroxyproline into that pathway that's more of an oxalate pathway so i don't want to say that humans don't ever have oxalate as part of a, uh, a detoxification pathway in our body but we never have oxalate at the levels that are produced in plants and we don't use oxalate for anything in our bodies but in terms of the other things all these plant pesticides, phytic acid, digestive enzyme inhibitors, none of these things are found in plants, in, excuse me, in animals at all. And then the other thing I will say, and I'll bring up a couple of studies here that I think people will find really, really interesting. So I've posted about this on my Instagram. The other question you're asking is about hormesis and whether or not these compounds are beneficial increasing oxidative pathways. So there are a number of studies that I've found recently to refute that, that directly refute the idea that eating fruits and vegetables does anything for humans from an oxidative perspective or from an antioxidant perspective. So I'll, maybe we can put these in the show notes or I'll give people the titles of these studies right now so they can look them up. But the first of the studies is no effect of 600 grams of fruit and vegetables per day on oxidative DNA damage and repair in healthy non-smokers. Yeah, I saw that one on your Instagram. Yeah. So this is something that I'll let, I'll let sink in. So that is a crazy study. Like, like wait a minute. I, that is more than a pound of fruit and vegetables a day. And these are it's an interventional study, right? So this is what is a counter to the epidemiology. This is direct contrast. This is not epidemiology. This is an interventional study. It can't be a blinded interventional study because you can't blind people to fruit and vegetables. But this is an interventional study in Denmark 
where they took three groups of people and over 24 days, they had one group of people that ate no fruits and vegetables, zero fruits and vegetables. And you can see in the paper what they ate. And it wasn't a carnivorous diet. I think that they, I wish they'd done a carnivore diet arm, but um, they just ate like a regular Danish diet with no fruits and vegetables. The second group ate 600 grams, so over a pound, almost a pound and a half of fruits and vegetables a day. And the third group was given a, a pill that had the polyphenols from the equivalent polyphenols, their estimate, from 600 grams of fruits and vegetables in it. And what they saw at the end of the study was no difference in markers of DNA damage or oxidative stress between the three groups, which is crazy. It totally flies in the face of the notion that that vet fruit and vegetables have this antioxidant benefit in humans. And this is a little different than hormesis, and I'll, I'll clarify that. But if you look at the study, they did some darn good analyses here. They looked at markers of DNA damage, like 8-hydroxy, 2-deoxyguanosine, like we, like we talked about. They looked at endonuclease 3 sites. They looked at that uh, formamidopyrimidine sites. They looked at sensitivity to hydrogen peroxide. They looked at excretion of the DNA damage compounds and expressions of excision repair, um, DNA regulation genes, and they saw no difference. So they did a they did a robust number of measures of um, of these of DNA damage, and they saw nothing. And people might say, "Okay, I mean, I just want to let that sink in." Like, wait a minute, a pound and a half of fruit and vegetables, and they talk in the study about the actual over what duration? Twenty four days. They talk in the study about the actual fruit and vegetables people were eating. They were eating brassicas and cabbage and carrots and things you would expect to be like good. And they weren't just eating, I don't know what vegetables people would say like weren't like, they weren't just eating cucumber. You know, that wasn't like the only thing, you know, they were eating things that people tout as like the bastion of antioxidant defense. And the crazy thing is that there are multiple studies like this. I don't know why we haven't heard more about these studies, but at the risk of, you know, you know, overly doing this. I'll tell people one or two more of this just so they can look at the actual titles. This one is from 2018. The title kind of says it all. You can guess what the results are. Effects of a high consumption of vegetables on clinical, immunological, and antioxidant markers in subjects at risk of cardiovascular disease. Um, the, they, and the conclusion is they say no significant changes were detected in clinical, immunological, or antioxidant markers in biological samples. And this is, um, I'm trying to see how long they did this study. This was a four-week intervention. So essentially the same, you know, like a 28-day study here, which is just wild, you know? And then there's another study. There's multiple studies like this now that suggest there are there are no studies that I'm aware of that show the reverse. There are no studies I'm aware of where giving people these uh, a bunch of vegetables has shown an improvement in these oxidative stress markers. But there are multiple studies that show, hey, when we actually do the study and we don't just rely on epidemiology, we don't see any benefit, which is just so paradigm shifting. The third study, increasing the risk, increasing the vegetable intake dose is associated with a rise in plasma carotenoids without modifying oxidative stress or inflammation in overweight or obese postmenopausal women. So that title kind of says it all. Um, and there are other studies like this. So at the, I'll just pause there because I don't want people to get like overwhelmed. But yeah. isn't that a crazy concept that... So there, there's one kind of like divergence here that I have that's along the same lines is, is how much data have you looked at that maybe quantifies the benefit of 
exogenous antioxidants, exogenous polyphenols, anything like that. So, you know, has anyone been able to prove these compounds given via supplement form has, has actually benefited us? Or is that something that's completely subjective based on the marketing we're being exposed to? You know, this is a fantastic point and kind of will segue into your question about hormesis. Um, the claims around many of these exogenous polyphenols as antioxidants are largely based in conjecture and hyperbole. Um, it's, it's a pretty bleak, it's a pretty bleak field. We can dive into sulforaphane as an example, if you'd like, but I think that there are some molecules that we have seen a hormetic benefit from. There are some studies that show that when we give sulforaphane, that DNA damage does go down. And I'd like to talk about those because they're an interesting, there's an interesting nuance there. Okay. So the way that, but that doesn't happen with all the polyphenols. And there are concerns about this because we're getting back to the idea of um, the different operating systems. So the sulforaphane example will be illustrative, I think, here. So sulforaphane is a very highly oxidative, it's oxidatively reactive compound that is formed when myrosinase combines with glucoraphanin. So in a brassicate vegetable, in a broccoli sprout or kale or any of these brassicate vegetables, the plants don't have sulforaphane. They have glucoraphanin. And what happens is myrosinase is an enzyme in the plant that combines with glucoraphanin to create sulforaphane when the plant is chewed. So this is kind of interesting. This is actually the plant's idea that, hey, if you chew my leaf, if you chew me, I am going to make a compound that is different than what I had before. And this compound is going to be damaging to you. And so sulforaphane is a very oxidatively stressful compound. It's very oxidatively reactive. It's very reactive from a redox perspective, okay? And just so people understand, oxidation is loss of electrons, reduction is gain of electrons. So what we're, basically what we're talking about here is movement of electrons between uh, molecules. And lipid peroxides, free radicals are doing the same things. When we talk about free radicals, we are talking about molecules with unpaired electrons that can lose or gain electrons and cause uh, free radical propagation reactions or lipid peroxidation reactions, wherein electrons get passed around and we end up with more free radicals and oxidative stress. But when we say oxidative stress, we are talking about molecules that are, uh, that are reactive from a um, uh, molecules that are reactive from an electron donation and acceptance perspective. So sulforaphane so loves to do that. It is very oxidatively reactive. It's going to be a molecule that is going to lose electrons and create other free radicals in our bodies. Now, the reason it's found to have some benefit is from this hormetic effect. And that is what happens when we have a small amount of a poison. But let's be clear, this is a poison. Sulforaphane is a toxin produced by the plant in this reaction only when the plant is chewed. If sulforaphane were present in broccoli, it would be very stressful for the plant and it would cause the plant oxidative damage and it would probably kill the plant. So you can't have a plant with sulforaphane in it. But when you chew the plant, you get sulforaphane. Our bodies are so evolved that what we see 
is when we get sulforaphane in our bodies, we absorb it and then we immediately detoxify it. Sulforaphane does not circulate in the human body. It does not have a unique role to any significant effect. It will circulate for a short amount of time before it gets excreted, but it's immediately detoxified. There's no point in human biochemistry at which these molecules serve a unique role. And so sulforaphane is an oxidative stress. We get rid of it. We conjugate it to glutathione. We immediately excrete it. But it then triggers the NRF2 pathway, which causes us to increase our own glutathione, which is really the prototypic mechanism for hormesis. So sulforaphane itself is not an oxidative, it's not an antioxidant, it's the reverse. Sulforaphane is an oxidant. Sulforaphane has actually been shown to create lipid peroxides that is damaging uh, oxidative products of lipids like 4-HNE and acrolein in membranes. But we detoxify it, we get rid of it, and our NRF2 pathway increases our own endogenous glutathione, and then glutathione in our bodies serves this role as this overall protector from an antioxidant perspective. But what these studies, I think, are showing, and what we see is that that's redundant, right? We don't actually need that extra glutathione. If you look at these hormesis studies, you can show in a very small model that you decrease DNA damage. But when we look at the actual intervention trials and people are eating brassica vegetables, we don't see any difference because most people, if they're eating a healthy diet or doing other healthy things, make plenty of glutathione and have a totally robust glutathione antioxidant response. And that's the kind of stuff that you see on a carnivorous diet as well. This goes back to your first question to me about my labs. I've tested my glutathione. My glutathione was really, really high on a carnivorous diet, right? So the mechanism of sulforaphane and many of these polyphenols is not unique. And we can make enough of our own glutathione without them. And then perhaps the most important piece here is that because these molecules like sulforaphane and others, which we can go into, are from a different operating system, then they have collaterally damaging effects. In the case of sulforaphane, when it circulates in the human body, it competes with iodine at the level of the thyroid and can push people toward a hypothyroid state. So what we're doing is we're taking this compound that's doing something for us that is not unique that we can do on our own, and then it also has a damaging effect to our thyroid. I definitely think there are people walking around out there with hypothyroidism or subclinical hypothyroidism because they are eating too many broccoli seeds and broccoli sprouts at the urging of Rhonda Patrick or others. So does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Now, I know on the podcast we did with Mark Bell, you talked a lot about fiber. Um, so I don't want to go down too many rabbit holes, but that's one I think we should overcome, right? So most people have this belief, myself included, up until very recently, until I heard you speak about it, <laughs> believe that fiber was just this kind of uh, overall healthy thing. You need to get a wide range of different types of fiber, and you're going to overall see improvement in blood markers, um, improvement in lipids, uh, improved digestion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I first began to question it when, you know, over the last maybe six months, my vegetable consumption was high. And I was actually noticing my inflammatory markers going up. Oh, interesting. Which is why I, which is why I was so uh, open-minded to you know, this idea of trying carnivore for 30 days. Yeah, the fiber thing is very interesting. And um, 
if people are, I'll do my best to give a, uh, a rundown here. If people want more detail, they're welcome to refer to the debate I did with Lane Norton on Mark Bell's Power Project because we went into this in detail, probably ad nauseum, uh, no pun intended. But the fiber story is interesting. And the fiber story kind of mimics other stories that we see with humans thinking about problems in medicine. There is this idea that we go, we've done this multiple times, we've made this mistake over and over in human history. We go to indigenous cultures, we notice that they don't have a disease which is plaguing Western society, and then we make a guess about what it is they are doing that is causing them to be free from that disease, and we have been wrong probably 100% of the time because we are using a westernized framework. We did it with the Eskimo in regard to heart disease. We saw the Eskimo eating a crap load of fat, and we said, wait a minute, they're eating all this fat. We are sure, in air quotes, we are sure that fat causes heart disease, but they don't have fat, So what is protecting? but they don't have heart disease. So what is protecting them from heart disease? We said, it must be the omega-3. Well, that's wrong. We know that we need omega-3 but it wasn't the omega-3 that was protecting them from heart disease. It's probably just the idea that whale blubber and fat don't actually cause heart disease, right? We did the same thing when a guy named Burkitt went to Africa. And at that time, people were thinking about diverticulosis. And diverticulosis, which is the outpouching of submucosal layers of the colon through the muscularis mucosa, creating these blind diverticuli, um, that was rampant and is still rampant in westernized society. We know that people above the age of 50 have, I think, upwards of 70 to 80% of those people have diverticulosis. And much diverticulosis is asymptomatic, but when diverticula uh, become symptomatic, they can bleed, which is a very big deal, or they can become occluded, causing diverticulitis, which is kind of similar to appendicitis. The appendix is another blind loop, but it's not a diverticulum. Um, but the diverticula can get occluded, causing diverticulitis, which is like a pus pocket in this blind loop. Those can rupture, causing sepsis. So diverticulitis is a big deal. It's not a normal condition. We know that humans do not get this invariably. And Burkitt went to Africa and saw people eating a crap load of fiber, pun intended, and taking big poops. They were taking huge shits. And he said, hey, they don't have diverticulosis. It must be all the fiber, except that's completely wrong. <laughs> And now we are beginning to understand that diverticulosis is probably a disease of inflammation. There's more and more evidence that there is lymphocytic, that is immune cell infiltration into the diverticula. So the idea that diverticulosis is in any way related to fiber or that fiber is protective against diverticulosis has been disproven time and time again. Diverticulosis is probably an autoimmune condition or an inflammatory condition in the colon whereby the immune system is causing, you know, potentially attacking the colon wall and causing weakening because we see this lymphocytic infiltration. That's neither here nor there. What we see in the evidence is that when we actually look at westernized humans, and there was a study done in 2012, um, which is super interesting. And this was a study where they did colonoscopy, which is the way to see diverticuli. And they looked at people with increasing rates of diverticulosis and they asked them how much fiber they were eating, what do you think they found? They found that the more fiber someone ate, the more diverticulosis someone had. So this doesn't prove that fiber is causing diverticulosis, but this and many other studies are pretty clear indicators that fiber does not protect against diverticulosis in any way, shape, or form. This is 
totally a fallacy. Burkitt was just plain wrong, unfortunately, here. So that's the first part. You know, people say fiber will protect against diverticulosis. Fiber will improve constipation, like you were saying. But what we actually see in terms of constipation in the studies, we're shifting now from diverticulosis to constipation, is that in interventional trials, when people stop or reduce dietary fiber, the constipation and the associated symptoms get better. It gets better. So this is a 2012 paper from the World Journal of Gastroenterology. The title is Stopping or Reducing Dietary Fiber Intake Reduces Constipation and Associated Symptoms. In this study, they had a group with zero fiber. And that group was composed of 16 people. So they had three groups. They were all 16 people groups. They had zero fiber reduced and regular amount of fiber. In the zero fiber group, 100% of people with gas bloating and constipation had complete resolution of their symptoms. So again, this is kind of like the, the polyphenols and vegetable study. It just kind of makes your head do that. Like your head just blows just blows up. You're like, what? This is so contrary to what I've been told. You go to the doctor with diverticulosis or constipation, what are they going to tell you? eat more fiber, but the literature doesn't support it. And in many cases, the literature suggests the opposite. And why are we not surprised? Fiber really doesn't have any role in the human body. It It doesn't really get absorbed. It doesn't get digested. There is some small evidence that it could reduce LDL, but the reductions are so minuscule. We're talking three to four milligrams per deciliter, which people listening, they'll know that's, that's, like essentially zero, right? So fiber reducing LDL is negligible. Fiber reducing blood pressure, negligible. And then the whole other piece of fiber, and I, I feel, I'm sorry, I feel like I'm just going on these whole rants here, but hopefully it's, it's, no, it's, hopefully it's beneficial. Yeah, give everybody the deep that, that, The whole other piece of the fiber equation is around cancer. And people say, oh, fiber is beneficial for colon cancer, right? Uh, wrong. There are multiple studies done in very prestigious journals like the New England Journal of Medicine with both fruit and vegetable intervention and um, addition of uh, uh, exogenous fiber, like a fiber supplement, which show no benefit, no association to fiber and colorectal cancer risk. So this is a this is a what year is the study? This is in the New England Journal of Medicine from 1999. Dietary fiber and the risk of colorectal cancer and adenoma in women. This is not a small study. This is a prospective study of 88,000 women. And what do they say? Our data do not support the the existence of an important protective effect of dietary fiber against colorectal adenoma. This is an epidemiology study. It is not an interventional study, but there are other interventional studies that that I will mention here that show the same thing. So also published in the New England Journal of Medicine, interventional study with a cereal, a high fiber cereal supplement. This is also, what's the year on this one? This is the year 2000. Lack of effect of a high fiber cereal supplement on the recurrence of colorectal adenomas. So this is 1,300 patients. Um, The conclusion as used in this study, a dietary supplement of wheat bran fiber does not protect against recurrent colorectal adenomas. We see the same thing. We can't assume then, though, that reducing fiber would... uh, Basically, what I want you to get at is we hear the opposite is true, right? Right. We hear that someone with no fiber, with a high meat diet, would be pro 
tumors, right. but pro-cancer causing, right? So how would you kind of refute that argument? Obviously, we know that massive amounts of cancer or cancer supplementation, or, or sorry, massive amounts of fiber or fiber supplementation is not the cure. Right. Um, but how about the flip side? Like, you know, there's tons of people out there making the argument, if you don't have any fiber, if you don't have, if you only eat meat, are we not going to predispose ourselves to cancer? Right, right, right. So this is another really interesting piece of this. Um, <clears throat> if we look at red meat and cancer, the association doesn't exist in any particular, like in any substantial way in the literature. So this is a, a very, very big uh, misconception. So <clears throat> there was a large study, or there was a study of meta-analyses done by a group called the IARC. I don't know exactly what the acronym stands for. But there, what that group found, and this is where it all comes from, there was a statement issued by the, AA, the IARC that meat was associated with cancer. But if we actually break down and look at their statement, there were over 400 studies that had studied meat and cancer, colorectal cancer specifically. And this group chose to only look at 15 of those studies. Of those 15 studies, eight, so the majority showed no association between red meat consumption and cancer. Five showed a non-statistically significant association, but again, no, no statistical, no statistically, not statistically significant association. So there was an association, but not statistically significant, meaning we don't know, you know? And again, this can also be confounded by healthy user bias. And this, these studies did not stratify for processed meat and other things in the diet. There was only out of those 15 studies, there was one study that showed a statistically significant association between meat and cancer. And if you look at that study, that association is only there when you uh, look, when you, in the people who are obese and diabetic, and it is much stronger for processed meat. So what we're seeing here is a vastly misinterpreted uh, idea in the data that there's any association between red meat and cancer of the colon or really anywhere else. Very interesting. The counter argument to this is a large study that was done in Asia, which is super interesting, right? We never really think about this, but healthy user bias is more of a westernized concept. In Asia, there hasn't really been the same I, uh, sort of prop propaganda or the same idea that has been uh, promulgated in society for the last 60 years that red meat is bad and that vegetables are good. So if you're in a Western country in the last 50 to 60 years and you're eating a bunch of bacon and hamburgers, you are somebody who's a rebel. You are wearing a leather jacket. You are riding a motorcycle and you are living independently, man. You are like Steve McQueen, smoking cigarettes, not exercising because you say, I don't care. I'm going to do what I want. But this, because this is what's the health, this is the healthy user bias and the unhealthy user bias in Westernized countries. But in Asian countries, they've never, they, they don't have the same bias. In Asian countries, it's considered to be a luxury to eat meat. And if you're eating meat, you are thought to be one of like the gentrified people or you're rich. You know, if you can eat meat, you are rich. So if you look at epidemiology in Asia, you see the completely different story. So this is from the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition in 2013. And the study is called Meat Intake and Cause-Specific Mortality, a Pooled Analysis of Asian Prospective Cohort Studies. So what they looked at in this one was over... Uh, 112,000 men and women. They're followed for 6.6 .6 to 15.6 years. They looked at all cause, cancer, cardiovascular disease, deaths, and associated it with meat consumption. And what they said is, um, 
Ecological data indicate an increase in meat intake in Asian countries. However, our pooled analysis did not provide evidence of a higher risk of mortality for total meat intake or provided evidence of an, and it actually provided evidence of an inverse association with red meat, poultry, fish, and seafood uh, in those populations. So red meat intake was inversely associated with cardiovascular mortality in men and with cancer mortality in women in Asian countries. So that is just amazing to me, you know? Like if we take out the health user bias, the, it becomes much less clear. And these things which are parroted as canon you know, in westernized, do not, they don't even occur in Asia. Like, you know, women, women had less of a chance of dying from cancer when they ate meat and men had less of a chance of dying from heart disease when they ate meat in Asia. So, and if you, like I said before, if you look at the actual studies that are behind any purported or promulgated idea that meat is going to cause cancer of the colon, number one, there's no mechanism. And number two, the studies don't actually show it. And when you the only study that shows it, you have to, if you adjust it for uh, adiposity and prediabetes and diabetic conditions, that's where you see the strongest association. So it's a very misconstrued concept. Does that help? Do you think that'll help people understand it? Oh, absolutely, man. I've just got a few more quick questions. And I, I want to ask, um, you brought up uh, glycine and collagen ratios relative to animal protein. And do you have any kind of rules that you live by as far as how much? And uh, just have you talk about that for a minute. Yeah. So this is interesting. Um, I think that the idea here is that when we look at human biochemistry, we know that we need methionine and glycine without getting, I mean, I guess we've gotten pretty darn deep dive in a lot of these other things in this podcast, but you know, the human body buffers excess methionine by using glycine. And so what we see is that methionine is higher in muscle meat and glycine is higher uh, in connective tissue. Now, I should clarify that statement. If you look at muscle meat, it's about 7 to 8% glycine and about 2% methionine. If you look at connective tissue, it's about 0.9% methionine and about 23% glycine, which we would expect because collagen is a three amino acid peptide, which is composed of glycine, proline, and hydroxyproline. So collagen protein, if we're getting hydrolyzed collagen or we're eating tendon or connective tissue, it's, it's a little less than a third glycine. And muscle meat is has more methionine. So what we're seeing here is that if you look at animal studies, a 2% methionine diet is considered to be a pretty high methionine diet. And what they have found in animal studies is when they overfeed methionine and they restrict glycine, the animals don't do as well. They tend to get sick, they have inflammation, they have oxidative stress. So what we are, what I am thinking of with regard to methionine-glycine ratios in the setting of a carnivorous diet is this idea of nose to tail, that when we're eating the whole animal, we're not just going to eat the muscle meat. We're probably not always going to be eating meat with a methionine of 2% and a glycine of 8 or 9% or 7 to 8 We're going to be eating connective tissue that has twice the amount of glycine or three times that amount of glycine. And that's probably going to balance and change this methionine-glycine ratio a little bit. So what I caution people against is just eating muscle meat on a carnivorous diet. If people look at my social media, they'll see that I'm all about eating nose to tail. I'm all about eating organs and collagen and you know uh, omega-3s from salmon roe, et cetera. Because I want, uh, if you look at it, that is the way in which we find real um, 
useful symmetry and balance and all these nutrients that we're getting from different parts of the animal. So my concern is that if people are just eating muscle meat, we may imbalance methionine and glycine. And this is testable. You know, if people come to me and I can test things like pyroglutamate, I can test glutathione levels, I can test serum glycine or plasma glycine levels, and I can directly measure to make sure that they're getting enough glycine. Well, why do we care about getting enough glycine? Like I kind of alluded to earlier, we want to get enough glycine because we're going to use up glycine when we buffer methionine. And glycine is one of the three amino acids in two critical proteins in the human body, glutathione, which we talked about, and collagen. So if we get glycine deficient, we're going to get oxidative stress because we're not going to make enough glutathione. So that is why I advocate for people combining things like collagen, tendons, bone broth, which are all good sources of collagen and therefore sources of glycine with the muscle meat. And um, I just don't want those to get imbalanced in people because I fear that just eating muscle meat may be too much methionine um, for people. And we just need to test it or people can sort of uh, just give themselves a buffer and imagine eating tendons, imagine eating the whole animal and you get more of these connected tissues, whether it's skin or tendon or any of these other pieces of the animal. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely, man. So just two more easy questions for you. Um, we didn't speak about monounsaturated fats at all. So olive oil has been shown to have tremendous positive implications in bringing down inflammation. Uh, any thoughts or opinions on on adding that to a carnivorous diet? Yeah. So the reason that olive oil is beneficial goes back to kind of like the sulforaphane story. Olive oil is a source of polyphenols. And again, the what olive oil is doing is increasing our own glutathione. And so my argument would be that the polyphenols from olive oil, we may not need. If we can create an ideal state, an optimal state with glutathione by giving our body um, enough um, precursors to make glutathione, which would be cysteine, glutamine, and glycine, and we're giving our body other hormetic stressors in the setting of sunlight or exercise, we're probably going to get uh, plenty of glutathione and we're going to have an ideal glutathione status. I don't think we need the olive oil polyphenols to do that. The other thing is that the olive oil, olive oil polyphenols have never been studied for other detrimental effects in humans. So I worry about that as well. And then there's the other piece of the plant oil equation is um, the oleosins, which are actually proteinaceous molecules in the fat. So from an immunologic perspective, I think it's cleaner to just not have plant compounds on a carnivorous diet. I don't see a unique benefit to olive oil. Could it potentially have a hormetic effect? Yes. I think olive oil is probably most beneficial in that it replaces other vegetable oils. So when you look at the olive oil studies, it's beneficial because it replaces omega-6s, which are probably very, very damaging. But we also have to remember that olive oil is a monounsaturated fatty acid. It can oxidize. And I just, I do not believe that it is the panacea, the fountain of youth that Stephen Gundry wants to say it is. I don't think it has a unique benefit. I mean, that guy takes like a bath in olive oil every day, practically. Like, I just don't think it, it holds the promise that we expect it to. Is it better than canola oil? Hell yeah. Um, and in interventional studies, if they 
compare olive oil to canola oil, that's like comparing, you know, that those are not even in the same ballpark, right? But I don't think olive oil has a unique benefit in terms of its polyphenols. I don't think it's doing anything unique. And I worry that the oleosins in the oil could trigger people. And then I also worry that these polyphenolic compounds in olive oil are from a different operating system. And I think that they can trigger issues for people in other ways. Interesting, man. Now, one last question. If you had to make an argument for eating some plants and I had to make right. an argument on the other side saying, hey, here's why you would want to eat plants and you're fighting against your argument. What would your defense be? Uh, so I'm now I'm making an argument for eating plants. Yeah. Um, I think that, I think that the argument for eating plants, I mean, from my perspective is kind of what I was saying in the beginning that I believe humans are facultative carnivores and that in our lives, there are times that eating plants is probably a valuable thing to do from um, an overall quality of life perspective. Meaning that you're with friends and you don't want to just eat meat or you're at a birthday party or something. And, you know, like this is the overall quality of life equation. I'm going to eat a cabbage. I'm at a birthday party. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, you know what I mean? Like you're with your wife or something. At a, yeah, I get it, man. Celebrating a birthday or something. And sure. Somebody wants to eat, you know, whatever. That's not, not just steak, you know. I think that there's, you know, we have the ability to tolerate some plants from a um, from an evolutionary perspective. We can do it. Whether or not it's optimal long-term is questionable. Some people are probably much more sensitive. But I think, you know, I don't want to come off as a zealot for carnivory. I want people to understand that it's viable, that, I, that it may be an optimal diet for humans, that for people that are sick, it can create um, incredible healing in a lot of uh, situations, and that this may be the beginning of a really overarching hypothesis um, that plants may be triggering autoimmunity and inflammation in a lot of people. But having said that, I think considering it's the right quality of meat, yeah, right, exactly. And then you're eating most of the It's like, yeah, we didn't really talk about this idea of you know uh, poor quality uh, meat versus high quality. I, mean, I know you did bring it up a little bit, but you know, would you would you weigh the negative implications of poor quality? Uh, meat against um, eating vegetables. Like if I had to choose, yeah. if you're going out to a restaurant, you're like, hey, I'm going to eat this really crappy quality steak versus having something that was, you know, maybe not uh, animal based. Yeah, that that that's actually a very compelling argument, and it's hard to know. I think if the argument is around something like farmed salmon, it becomes more more clear. You know, I would say, yeah, you might want to eat vegetables instead of farmed salmon. Um, the, the meat is a little bit trickier for me to say. I think that it's just a judgment call. But yeah, you could potentially make an argument like, oh, I can only get crappy meat. Maybe I'll eat these vegetables. Maybe they're less toxic, especially if the vegetables are organic and the meat is just, you know, conventionally raised. But um, that's a tough thing, man. That's a tough decision. I mean, I think that some people in the carnivore community would say, no, the the traditionally raised meat is fine and maybe the traditionally raised meat is better than vegetables. I think that's a tough, that's a tough one. I, I can't quite say that, but I think that there are situations in which people could, could eat vegetables and not have a negative effect. And often on podcasts, I'm sort of asked like, what are the least toxic vegetables? I think that's an interesting thing for people to hear about. Fruit. Yeah, I'd love to hear that. What mm -hmm. is that? Is it fruit? Or no, I don't think it's, I don't know that it's fungus. necessarily fruit. I would think of it as non-sweet fruits um, are probably the least toxic vegetables like avocado, cucumber without the seeds or the skin, which probably have a lot of lectins. Um, and then uh, potentially olives. I think of like non-sweet fruits. Um, totally, yeah. Once we get into fruits, you know, I think what we're dealing with is the whole fructose equation. And fructose doesn't seem to be a beneficial molecule for humans. And we can tolerate a little bit of it. But once we get over 20, 25 grams a day, it 
really appears to change satiety mechanisms in the brain with leptin and ghrelin. It appears to change the way we process things in the liver and maybe even cause insulin resistance. And so I'm not a fan of overconsumption of fruit. A little bit of fruit is probably pretty benign, especially if it's something like berries in the spring, if it's seasonal. I don't think humans should be eating fruit all year round. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me either. But all year round. Sure. Um, yeah, my arguments. And now one thing we didn't we didn't talk about that I'd love for you to touch on because it's relevant is is fish. You didn't say you eat any fish or any seafood. Is that just you know mercury reasoning or is there actually a reason why you don't like fish? I, I think fish is great if it's from a good source and if we know that it's low no low heavy metal fish. Um, I will eat uh, mussels and scallops um, and uh, oysters from time to time. I eat salmon roe every day. It's why wild salmon row and occasionally I'll eat wild salmon but unfortunately even wild salmon has higher levels of mercury than I would like and in my clients who are eating wild salmon three to four times a week I do see sometimes some elevated serum heavy metals um, you know they can probably process it but it's going to use up some glutathione to get rid of those so I try to get I try to get the cleanest non-oxidized form of omega-3 that I can without with the littlest contribution or contamination with the heavy metals. And for me, that's been uh, like salmon roe. Another good source might be sardines or small fish. Another good source of omega-3s for people might be bone marrow. But yeah, I mean, I think that on a carnivorous diet, fish is totally reasonable, but uh, be aware of metal contamination. And even the shellfish admittedly has cadmium in it. So you have to be aware of that too. Do you take any supplements, Paul? You know, I don't. um, I'm not sure what people would consider to be supplements, but um, occasionally, collagen protein. Yeah, I, I do use collagen protein. Sometimes I will um, just use glycine powder um, if I'm trying to like fool around with how I feel with glycine versus collagen. So technically, glycine is a supplement. You know, it's an amino acid. I will take. You know, I use tallow on my foods. It's just a rendered animal fat. I use bone meal. It's just bones from an animal, so I wouldn't consider it a supplement. But yeah, I don't take anything else. I don't take vitamin C. Um, I get plenty of vitamin C in liver and meat. Um, I don't take, uh, I don't take anything, nothing and nothing else. Um, occasionally I'll take like desiccated organ complex, which is actually just beef organs, you know, um, been kind of experimenting with that just for variety and trying to eat nose to tail without actually being able to get pancreas and spleen, you know? Sure. And if you could acknowledge any limitations with the carnivore diet, what would they be? You know, I think that it's socially limiting. And I think that um, some people um, end up feeling ostracized. And people, I would I would admit that variety is important to some people's diets. You know, when I had the conversation with Ben Greenfield, he was like, he made this great point that his wife really likes to entertain and likes to create beautiful patterns of food. I think that probably the biggest limitation of the carnivore diet is it doesn't look as good in photos. You know, right. the carnivore diet is not the supermodel on photos on Instagram. I mean, there's only so many ways you can photograph a steak. And I'll admit, Right. Plants are beautiful. I just don't know that that they create optimal health when we put them in our mouths. Um, they're they're beautiful on our plates, and I love seeing you know like a flower or you know a garnished thing of green next to my steak. But I mean, I think that the carnivore diet doesn't look good um, like other plant based things do. You know, the, the other thing I'll acknowledge about the carnivore diet is unless you do a carnivore diet intentionally, and I would argue with uh, attention to eating nose to tail, you can get nutrient deficiencies. And that's what I'm trying to hopefully educate people about eating nose to tail. If you just eat muscle meat, you will get, you probably will get deficiencies in things like folate, vitamin A, biotin, you could get a zinc and copper imbalance. Eating nose to tail, those don't happen, which is kind of this beautiful symmetry of eating animals. They are our operating system. And if we eat the whole animal, 
we don't see any of those problems. You know, there's vitamin A in the liver, there's copper in the liver to balance zinc and muscle meat. You'll get plenty of folate generally from egg yolks and liver, and you'll get biotin from liver and egg yolks, and you'll get manganese, and if you eat the bones, you'll get some boron. And so, yeah, but that's that's the real problem with a carnivore diet is it's so restricted that people can run into deficiencies if they don't construct it with a lot of attention to those nuances. Dr. Paul Saladino, that was amazing, and I'm sure everyone's going to have to go back and listen to it twice. Dude, I'm, I'm very grateful, and uh, I'll keep you posted on my progress. I'm very curious to see Absolutely, how I feel dude. amazing already. I'll tell you that. Like, Energy-wise, sleep is better. Um, I have been consuming a lot of protein, um, but I mean, I'm just kind of eating when I'm hungry, and I notice I'm less hungry, less likely to have cravings. Yeah. And uh, yeah, keep it posted, man. I'm very grateful for your your wisdom and your inspiration on the topic. Man, it's so much fun to do it. I, I love coming on, and I, I it's so cool to be a part of this community. Like. I just, I'm really happy to be a part of it and to be able to contribute. You know, there's a lot of really cool people in this community thinking outside of the box. And I just hope it benefits people in, in you know, long term. I hope people who are sick see it as an option and people get better or people are able to lead better lives. Ultimately, it's just about helping people lead better lives. And, um, you know, however we can do that, whether it's if people feel their best on a vegan diet, then I cannot deny that there are probably humans out there that may feel that way, but yeah. it, it would be an interesting thing. You know, I mean, there's hopefully I'll get a chance to have a conversation with Rich Roll in the future and um, things like that. But yeah, I think it's a fantastic thing. I'm super grateful to be a part of the community. So, And where should our listeners go to find out more from you? Yeah. So probably if people want to work with me, I'm a functional medicine doc. They can email me at MD at gmail.com. My last name is spelled like Saladino, like salad and dinosaur, a little irony there, S-A-L-A-D-I-N-O. I'm on Instagram at Paul Saladino MD. I post a lot of content there. I'm on Twitter at MD Saladino. Um, Twitter seems to be a place where people just generally get into arguments these days. So I try to also share content on Twitter, Twitter, but uh, Instagram is the main spot. I'm on Facebook at Paul Saladino MD. I've got a YouTube channel people should check out. If they just Google Paul or they search Paul Saladino MD, they'll find my YouTube channel. I'm always trying to make more videos that are really high quality talking about all these concepts and people can refer back to that. And then I'm on Patreon. Just look for Paul Saladino MD. Um, and that is where people can find me, reach out to me. Are you still a practicing physician? Yeah. And that's why you're moving down to San Diego. Is that where you're, you're going to open a practice down there? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm going to open a private practice there and it'll be interesting to see, you know, I think the practice is going to be busy. I'm also writing a book. Um, and I really enjoy, I really enjoy seeing patients in person because I feel like being grounded clinically really helps me substantiate what we're doing here. You know, it's so sure. valuable for me to see my blood work, other people's blood work, to see what people run into. I want to stay. I want to stay on the ground as a clinician. I really like sharing content. I really like doing conferences and stuff. I'm going to be at KetoCon in Austin in June. I'm actually going to be at Paleo FX in Austin in April, but just hanging out with people. I'm not presenting there. Um, but um, I love sharing content and sharing ideas. But seeing patients helps me translate it into actual practice, and it's been so valuable to actually see all the people's labs and like, yeah, this works, you know, like your inflammatory markers look great. Like your kidneys look great. Your thyroid looks fine, you know? And then, and then like we were talking about earlier to see the parts where the carnivore diet says, Oh, this is really going to challenge our intellectual framework around things like lipids. You know, most people or well, some people, not everybody, some people on a carnivore diet have LDL particle numbers that go real high. And, you know, we're trying to figure out if that's an issue or not. I don't think it is, but uh, many people in the lipid space. Have you started looking at the genetic components like the, the, uh, you know, 
certain SNPs predisposing people to elevated lipids with high saturated fats? You know, I, I have, and it doesn't, it doesn't seem, it doesn't correlate as much as I wish it did. Yeah. It just doesn't. Yeah. It, it gets close. It's, I, people say that like, or maybe it's this SNP, it's FTO or it's PPPAR gamma or PPAR alpha, but mm. I haven't seen it as much as I would expect. I'm sure that it is some sort of a genetic thing. And, but then the question becomes, is that LDL particle number the real problem, you know? And that's, that's the question we need to answer and to be very careful with because we don't want to lead people the wrong way, but we also don't want to, we also don't want to just like completely stall the field, you know, like if we just say high LDL particle number is going to cause atherosclerosis, then everybody's just going to like the whole field stops learning. Right. And that's not a good thing either. Right. Yeah, we need to keep pushing for Brilliant, man. I appreciate your time. I know we've gone a little long, but I'm sure our listeners are going to love it. Thank you very much. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Brother. I'll talk to you soon. Appreciate it, man. All right, ladies and gents, that's a wrap. Hopefully you stuck around to hear all the incredible gold that Dr. Saladino dropped on us today. Um, so much valuable information. And as I said at the end of the first episode, if this is not for you, I strongly suggest you keep an open mind because the first time I heard about this, I was completely closed-minded and thought it was absolutely ludicrous that somebody would only eat muscle. But they're not just eating muscle, they're eating organs, they're eating uh, ligaments and tendons and even bones. And perhaps our human body has evolved to sustain itself and thrive off animals. And if you think about um, evolution, that makes a lot of sense, right? We may have been eating some plants as survival mechanism um, to keep us alive and keep us satiated. But for the most part, all of our food probably would have come, at least the, the people who existed or continued to exist and didn't die would have been the hunters. They would have been the ones eating animals. Something to think about. Keep an open mind, and I hope that this has contributed to your knowledge base and your curiosity around life and health optimization. And don't forget to head over to forestigmatic.com and use the discount code MUSCLE to get hooked up with 15% off your next order of Forestigmatic. You're going to support the show. You're going to support our sponsors who take care of us. And we're so grateful for that. And if you've never tried mushrooms before, you know that I'm a massive advocate of Lion's Mane. I use three to six grams every single day. And I notice a substantial difference in my ability to learn, retain new information, and just improve brain function. Lion's Mane has been shown across the board to improve nerve growth factor, which is going to help your brain develop new neurons and ultimately form new neural connections and learn faster and more. Uh, if you've tried that already, I strongly suggest you check out Reishi as my greatest uh, prescription for anyone who's getting a little run down, if you feel like you're stressed or if you feel like you're getting sick, the first thing I tell everybody to do is throw back three to six grams of reishi mushroom and bang, it works better than vitamin C, it works better than echinacea, you're going to have a great uh, increase to your immune system and feel amazing right away. That's forstigmatic.com and use the discount code MUSCLE to get hooked up. I hope you guys enjoy the show head over and subscribe and share this with at least one person you know who should at least have this information. If they're not going to do a carnivore diet, there's still value in understanding how to eat nose to tail and how that impl implies um, long-term health of your detoxification systems and also your ligaments, tendons, bones, and collagen. Enjoy your day. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. 
This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.